Hi, my name is Neroli Price, and I'm one of the producers for Equity Rising, the podcast that connects with incredible people across the country and around the world fighting for racial justice. In this episode, our host Trey is in conversation with Mandisa Dianchi from the Social Justice Coalition all the way in Cape Town, South Africa. Mandisa and Trey talk about the similarities and differences of what it's like to fight for equal access in Seattle and Cape Town. From policing to housing, it turns out that there's a lot that we can learn from each other. All righty. Well, this is another episode of Equity Rising with me, Trey Holiday, and I'm so elated to be joined by Mandisa Dianti of the Social Justice Coalition in South Africa. Welcome, welcome to the show, Mandisa. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Absolutely. Now, we love to start off our, our shows and listen in for first things first. How are you taking care of you? Oh, that's a difficult one. <laughs> I think it's a difficult time globally for all of us. And I think as social justice um, workers or activists, we aren't really deliberate about taking care of, of ourselves. And we always like busy trying to solve problems across the world. Um, but I think this time has sort of called on us to be deliberate about taking time out and sort of making sure that we resend ourselves. And I think that's what I've been trying to do through really just being deliberate about relaxing and taking time out and developing some boundaries, you know, in terms of how one works and where work ends, um, because our work doesn't really end. It's part of our everyday life, but I think at least what I've learned is that um, for me to be able to do the work that I need to do, I need to be deliberate about relaxing and resting and taking care of myself. And that means getting out of spaces that cause me anxiety at times and not black womaning, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's yeah, a good one. I think it, it, I think that's what I've been sort of trying my best to do, that I don't need to be the strong black woman because times are already very tough and therefore we need to be kinder to ourselves and that's what I've been trying to do. I mean, I have twins. They are two years old, almost two. So it's insane. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's always good to know. And then maybe we can share tips and tricks. You know, I'm kind of doing exactly what you just described. You know, it's about taking time for yourself and enjoying kind of just life, right? Because you're so right about this being our lives. So much of this work for so many of us that are doing this work. Now, uh, you know, there is clearly some major differences between some of the racial characteristics that we have right here in Seattle versus what you're experiencing down there in South Africa. And I know that colonialization, you know, racial uprising, apartheid, all of that has really been a part of the social construct that you've been dealing with. So I want to just set up some of that history for the audience so that they can understand what has that been like, the racial tension, the apartheid, how has all of that really been for you being in South Africa? So we are what, 20 six years into democracy now. And I think 
politically apartheid ended in 1994 well maybe in 1990 when um president nelson mandela was released um from prison together with other political prisoners and and, and the process of negotiations started to say what does a an inclusive south africa look like and so politically i think we sort of engaged on this idea of a rainbow nation and there were dreams and hopes about what that means and what that looks like and i think for most of us it looked like an integrated society where everyone would belong because what apartheid did and maybe even other regimes before it colonialism what those did was to to clearly divide people along racial racial lines right and and apartheid was a policy that sought to institutionalize that even more and so the dream was that we will have this integrated south africa where everyone had ownership of the country where everyone could partake in whatever the country had to offer and i think what we didn't think at the time was how long that was take was going to take and and how deliberate we needed to be for us to create the world and the society that we were hoping for because I think what what we thought and I'm saying we as though I was part of the people that I was a child at the time <laughs> but I think the idea was that as soon as South Africa was declared a democratic country everything would just fall into place forgetting that there was a very deliberate system that segregated people and separated people along racial lines and for that to be corrected it needed another very deliberate action to say we are uniting people politically and economically and everyone we will be deliberate about sort of bringing everyone to the same level mm. and we were never going to achieve that in like two, three, ten years it was going to take time but I do feel like it's taking a bit longer than it should mm. right and I mean that in like basic basic things like access to basic services and how millions of people are still deprived of, of those as much as our constitution says it clearly that it is everyone's right to have access to basic services and i think mostly everything looks good on paper right but it is the implementation that that way everything seems to have blocked and maybe more deliberate work maybe conversations need to be had in that regard and what economically it looks like to be equal yeah and to to be free for everyone to be free economically because political freedom seems like something that everyone has kind of achieved but when you look at things economically they still reflect very much what apartheid wanted to achieve 
Wow. Wow. So it sounds like, you know, honestly, there's a lot of work left to be done. And, you know, that brings me uh, to your work, right? I mean, a lot of this is about kind of correcting the wrongs of the past. And it sounds like, you know, that's really where you guys are down there. So tell us a little bit more about what you do with Social Justice Coalition and what does the Social Justice Coalition do? So the Social Justice Coalition was started in 2008. And it's a strange story because it was started to respond to the so-called xenophobic attacks. Um, In 2008, there was like a spat of xenophobic attacks in South Africa, in Cape Town, in Joburg, in Durban. And there were townships that were hotspots, right? And Kailicha was one of those. Kailicha is the township that we are based in. Um, It's the biggest in Cape Town. And and when you say xenophobia, I just want to make sure that are are these like kind of racial incidents amongst whites against blacks? How, How is that kind of dynamic? So what that looks like in the South African context is clashes between black South Africans and black Africans from other countries. So it's really a black poor people fighting and scraping for resources. And so because foreign nationals are the minority, so they were the ones being attacked at the time. And I think mostly when, when we talk about, about xenophobia and xenophobic attacks, we talk about it as if black South Africans hate other Africans. And we, we don't delve deep to think about what that is and, and why that is. Mm. And that's why I'm saying that it was just black Africans scraping for resources because unemployment is high. People are either unemployed or underemployed or underpaid. Um, and so everyone is frustrated. And, you know, when, when people are frustrated, they look for outlets. Yeah. Right? And the most vulnerable of the people is going to be the outlet of people's anger. And, and, and foreign nationals, black foreign nationals, weigh that outlet of anger. And so the, 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 the SJC was formed by then organizations that were working in Kailicha together with community members of Kailicha. At the time, I think the biggest people's movement was the treatment action campaign, which was campaigning for access to ARVs during um, President Tabombeki's tenure. ARVs. Um, antiretroviral drugs. Like oh, HIV. drugs. Yes, Got it. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay. In, in trying to, to intervene there and in trying to understand why people were being violent towards one another or why it looked like South Africans, black South Africans were being violent towards other black Africans and trying to understand what the causes of that were, this organization was formed, mm. right? And a lot of things, a lot of factors play in, in xenophobia and, and how that plays itself out. But I think two of the things that came out at the time when, when comrades were sort of trying to understand how we respond um, were issues of access to service delivery 
things like access to basic sanitation services. And there was a question of, of safety and justice. And that came about because when people were trying to respond to these attacks and trying to get people to safety and trying to get the police to respond, there were no police to respond. Police were either overburdened by work or just not interested. And so it raised questions about the kind of police services that we, we, we are receiving. And I know that's, that's quite different from your narrative yeah. on that side in terms of how you view policing and how you talk about policing. And, and so maybe we, we can get into that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so two, two strands of work were developed as the thematic areas of the STC, and that was access to basic services. And the program that focused on that was called the local government program. And we also had the safety and justice program. So those programs very clearly defined what their focus would be. One would focus on the upgrading of informal settlements, and I believe that in other parts of the world they are called slums. And so focusing on a dignified existence for people staying in informal settlements and what that looks like. And our entry point was to say people who are staying in informal settlements deserve dignified sanitation at the very least. Yes. And then also through our safety and justice to say that people deserve protection. Um, when people re report crime, they deserve to be responded to and to be treated with respect in, in, that, in dealing with that crime. And so that's how the STAC came to be. So we now focus on access to basic services for people staying in informal settlements. And I mean, our constitution says that everyone has the right to dignity, to safety, and to life. And that, those are the things that we focus on to say, what does dignity look, look like for people staying in informal settlements? What does saying everyone has the right to safety, what does safety look like for everyday experiences of people staying in informal settlements? Right to life, how do, how do people experience their right to life in informal settlements? And, and so that's, that's, the work that we've been doing over the years, um, and we have been in, ex in existence for 12 years now, since 2008. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and so that, that really gave us such a great breakdown of the Social Justice Coalition. Uh, how about yourself? How did you yourself get into this work that you're doing today? So I grew up in a township. It's right close to Kailicha, where we are now. It's called Mfuleni. And me and my dad's a pastor. My parents are pastors, so I'm a PK. And Preacher's kid. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Cape Town, if, if, if you want to see a clear depiction of appointed special planning, Cape Town is the place to go. If you want to see how geographically people were divided along racial lines, even in how they interacted with each other, even in how communities and the city is planned, Cape Town is the place to, to be. So I, I grew up in a township, but because most economic services you will find in the city center 
so we interacted with the city in that way that you came in with a taxi, minibuses that we call taxis, and you left to go back to your home, the township, which is like 30, 35 kilometers out of the city. And I think I found that even as a child, I found that quite interesting that the community I stayed in was so clustered and everyone sitting upon uh, on top of each other. There are shacks, there are former houses, it's packed. And you go to town with a taxi, once you pass the airport, for us, the airport is where everything is just divided. When you go past the airport, things start to be clean. And you begin to see um, lawns, you begin to see green trees, you begin to see this beautiful, beautiful world that you don't have access to, that you interact with as either a visitor, a student, or a worker, right? And it was never a place where we belonged in or belonged to. It was never a a place we felt ownership of as people staying in the townships, because townships are really in the outskirts of the city. Mm. So there was always that interest for me. But there was also, I mean, in the townships and in rural areas in South Africa, I don't know how black people interact with the economy that side. But with us, there's always this idea that I want to get out of the township. I want to study, um, go to varsity, get a nice job and get out of the township and go to stay in the suburbs. Mm. And so that was my idea as well, that look, I'll just be as good as I can be at school because that's my ticket out. So once I finished my metric, which is grade 12, I don't know what the equivalent of 30 is with you guys. It's our high school, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, once I finished high school, um, I thought I wanted to be an accountant because I was told that's where the money is at. So, but I couldn't because my maths was terrible. So I was told no, girl. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was it was amazing because when they said no, you can't do accounting. One of the administrators at the varsity said, "But there's this course that is called political science. Are you interested?" I was like, "Yay! I just want to study." So, jumped right in. And for the first, my first year, I hated it with a passion. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm just doing this because I need to do this. I need to get a job. But in my second year, thanks to my two tutors, um, I fell in love with politics because I think it answered that question that I had as a child to say, why are there these inequalities? Why do we find ourselves where we found ourselves, right? And so political science as a study gave me say, maybe language to, to, to understand and talk about inequalities. And so I, I pursued politics until I did it until honors level and then I went to work and then come back, came back and did my master's. And then once I finished my master's, I, the STAC was looking for an education coordinator and I had experience in, in that. So I applied and they sort of were impressed and I got that job, thank God. And a year in, I was elected to be the deputy general secretary. 
And what that is, is the equivalent of a deputy director of, of the organization. And because we are a social movement, right? So the, the, the leaders of the organizations are elected by the members of the organization, which are in different communities. So a year in, I was sort of thrown into that deep end to say, lead us. So I took that together with my colleague who just left the SJC at the end of August. So yeah, I've been in this for three and a half years now in this leadership position. But from the beginning of this month, I'm now the director of, of the SJC. Yeah, so that, that Congratulations. Has been, thank you. It's, it's quite a daunting job, but yeah. Well, I really appreciate that context and the history. And it sounds like there are so many things, honestly, that are similar to our lived experience over here as black Americans. And when you talk about uh, the difference between kind of like this, you know, what we may consider urban areas or inner city in some cities, they would say, you know, like the projects or, you know, the the hood or whatever. But for for Seattle, we don't really have like projects necessarily we don't we don't really have these like high pockets of poverty that are concentrated in certain areas but what we do have is uh high high inequalities exactly what you're experiencing so understanding that there are certain neighborhoods that have been invested in over the course of time and that investment leads to a higher propensity for life, right? Like you, you are able to do whatever you want. You get all the opportunities. You know, the, you know, you're going to get a great job. Your life expectancy is longer because you have access to all these resources. So when we start to dive in to a lot of the statistics around this, we see that there are many disparities that are created through this kind of lifestyle. So there's always this kind of the haves and the have nots. And for us in this country, a lot of that wealth has really resided in the white population. And I just, before we take our first break, I wanted to ask you about the racial dynamics that you also experience between township and the suburbs. Is it similar to this kind of racial divide that we see here in America? I think it's, it's very similar in that and maybe more glaring in in South Africa because where you are economically is likely to align with racial divides in that if you are black, you are likely to be poor. And if you are white, the likelihood is that you are well off, right? And so even, even in how people will stay and who has access to the city, that too is along racial lines. Um, the people that will have access to the city, the people that will have easy mobility within the city are likely to be white people than it are likely to be black. So yeah, when we talk about access to service delivery, when we talk about people who have no access to adequate service delivery, we, we're likely talking about black and colored people and so, yeah, so that's how that's how race sort of plays itself out. When you're talking about unemployed people, those are black people and very unlikely white people. So, yeah, hence maybe I said at the beginning that how we envisioned um, a united South Africa was that everyone 
whether black or white was going to be somehow on the same level, but we haven't seen that happening 26 years on. Wow. Wow. This is such a great discussion with you, Mandisa. We are going to take a quick break and we're going to get right back into it after this break. But uh, you guys are listening to Equity Rising. Stay tuned, everyone. We'll be right back. And now it's time for the chime in. In this segment, we bring in voices from our community to see what they have to say. My name is Tammy Wakoma. I'm a Central District resident. Well, really, the importance of equitable development in the CD, it reaches beyond low-income housing because that's just a pacifier for the damage that has been done. Equitable development in the Central District looks like um, actual institutions that are crafted, created not only from the blueprint, but to the programming, to the staff, to the marketing, all coming from people of color, people who are directly impacted, people who have lived experience. That's what equitable development means to me in the Central District. It means creating programs to allow Black families to stay in their homes, to innovate their spaces and learn how to create multiple streams of income so they can pass on legacy wealth, so they can pass on legacy uh, intellectual property. Because a lot of times, you know, you see your parents do it, you see your grandparents do it, but the intellectual property is not being passed down so you can sustain that for yourself. And so it's beyond putting someone up, you know, in an $800, you know, one bedroom is actually saying, I realize that your family has been displaced from this neighborhood. How can I get you this fund to buy a new home here? How can I get you into financial literacy programs and uh, support programs? How can I help you farm your land so you're not spending so much overhead on grocery stores and companies that don't give a fuck about you? How can I help you and not how can I move you around because you've been displaced? Or how can I pacify you or put you in a cage because I don't know what to do with you anymore? So I think low income is a great Band-Aid, and we all need Band-Aids, but when it's time to heal, you need to rip that Band-Aid off, and you actually have to focus on the root of the problem, the root of the sore, what caused it. And so equitable, whatever the question was, because y'all know, y'all listen, it's important to Black folk because it actually gives us this ability to sustain who we are inside and out. My name is Marta Baki, and I am a business owner here in South Seattle, Washington, And to me, affordable housing in the Central District means bringing our people back, letting black people know that they are welcome in their city and that they don't have to go dispersed to the outer skirts of the city, that the city loves them and they're they're needed here. Um, Yeah, that's what that means to me. I feel like it's welcoming. Thanks to everybody who joined us for the chime in. And now back to the show. Thank you guys for listening to Equity Rising. We are back with Mandisa of the Social Justice Coalition down there in South Africa. And this has been such an elating uh, discussion that we're having. You have really laid the foundation for, you know, the the racial context in South Africa, uh, the work of the Social Justice Coalition and your own background. And so I want to get into to this movement, right, uh, a, a little bit here, because we're seeing a real swell 
globally in how things are moving. And and I want to ask you about your work down there in South Africa in the Social, Social Justice Coalition. How How is your work actually contributing to this kind of larger movement of, you know, equity work uh, globally? So what we try to do, I think to, to some extent for me, I don't think we have actually achieved what we are hoping to achieve. Because what we what we see in South Africa at least is that our government, whether at local or national level, has no plan for for people staying in informal settlements. And that is because informal settlements are viewed as temporary structures. That they are going to be here for a short period of time and then they are going to disappear or people are going to get formal houses and informal settlements are going to disappear. But our housing backlog tells us that that's not going to happen because there are millions of people in that housing list. And there are people that have been in informal settlements for over 30 years. There are informal settlements across here that have been in existence since 1983, Mm. right? And so that shows clearly that informal settlements aren't going anywhere and therefore there needs to be a plan to say how do we we integrate um, these, these communities to the city? How do we plan better for the upgrading of informal settlements to livable spaces? And how do we in that process, continue to be in conversation with the people that stay in these communities. Because these are people, these are people with ideas. These are people who are thinking through how to improve their own communities and what is lacking is resources. There's no lack of leadership. There's no lack of ideas. There's no lack of innovation. What people are lacking is just resources to to improve their own spaces. And so I think what we are working towards, and we've had a lot of challenges uh, in doing this, is to build a coalition and, and, and a movement of people staying in informal settlements. And those are likely black people. A movement of people that are going to come together to demand dignity. Because spaces where decisions are made and spaces where people are thinking through the future of South Africa aren't open to people staying in informal settlements. These are decisions that are made very far away from where people stay. So our hope is to create our own space where people are able to provide solidarity to one another, to say a certain community needs water. How do we come together as poor black people staying in formal settlements to call for that service to be given to these people? How do we hold one another in the process and in the struggle for fighting for our dignity? How do we hold one another and support one another in that process? Because we, I mean, the last time we saw a strong movement in South Africa was pre-democracy. And it was very clear what what people were fighting for because everyone agreed on who the enemy was. 
right? And now a black government is in place and people are divided. No, they are not the enemy. Okay, we agree they are not the enemy, but they are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? There's that aspect of it, but there's another aspect of it which is called white supremacy, right? That is still very much in place. And so if we agree to say, how do we deal with these things? Because um, the end of apartheid didn't bring an end of white supremacy. White supremacy is still very much in place. Even with a black government um, in power, um, business still has a very white face. Capital still has a very white face with the exception of very few black tenderpreneurs. Tenderpreneurs in South Africa are the black people that get tenders through government connections, sometimes, sometimes through um, an honest process of bidding. But very few black people are part of that, have joined um, the face of capital, but look at it from every corner in every industry. Capital is still controlled by white people. And so how do we build a coalition of black poor people that are going to support one another, stand with one another, um, demand equality, demand dignity, demand an overthrow of the system that continues to oppress people even in a democratic country? I think so we are working towards that to say what does a coalition of people looks like and of course we can't focus on everything our focus is dignified living for people staying in informal settlements yeah what does that look like how do we push the government to implement the upgrading of informal settlements into livable spaces and there are policies in place that set out exactly how that should be done. How do we force our leaders to implement those, to make sure that people stay in places that are good for, for, for people to be staying in? Yeah. And so that, that's, what we, that's what we are working towards. And I think our lens, we try to have a very feminist lens to work because I think my own belief is that if a space is safe for women, if a space is safe for black women, that space is safe for everyone. If in our planning, the city, in our planning, how we provide services to people, we are focusing on the most vulnerable in our society, and those are likely to be black women, right? If our focus is to make sure that a space is livable for black women, that space is livable for everyone, because if it's livable for black women, it's livable for, for their children. And because the, the job of taking care of the most vulnerable in our families also falls on the shoulders of black women, right? If, if, they, if there are people who can't do anything for themselves, black women are the people that are taking care of those people. So if our focus is black women and providing safe and livable spaces for black women, we are taking care of people with disabilities, we are taking care of children, we are taking care of the elderly because if our elderly can't do anything for themselves because they are too old, black women are likely taking care of the elderly as well. So I think my focus and what I'm trying to drive us to is to say, if we have a feminist lens to service delivery and the upgrading of informal settlements, we are literally taking care of everyone because really black women are at the bottom of the barrel. 
Wow. And so if yeah, so if we are taking off that sector of society, we are really solving everyone's problem. Because if, for instance, if we're saying we are bringing water closer to people in people's houses, that means that black women and their children can actually go to school and go to work because they don't have the burden of having, of having to go fetch water, right? And so every service that you can look at, if our focus is black women, black poor women, we are really making society livable and safe for everyone. Wow. I mean, I understand that concept wholeheartedly. And I think that the the different social dynamics make it even more uh, of a prominent statement down there in South Africa. I understand that wholeheartedly and agree with you. And, and you know, just listening to you speak just now and, and over the course of this interview, I'm realizing how similar the issues are, you know, between uh, America and South Africa, because I'm listening to you talk about this kind of divide amongst the black community. We deal with that too, right? Where there's some folks in the black community that the system of capitalism and, you know, hey, tie yourself up by the bootstraps and you, you know, right? you work it within the system. That's worked for some folks in the black community. So they're like, look, these incremental changes we do, these incremental things, that's like, that's what we need to do. And then there's others who are like, look, we're still, look, you know, over here getting crumbs and basically that isn't going to work for us. And so there is this whole thing of, of, there's a lot of folks, and this is why I like to say community, because there's a difference between folks that are in the community that, oh, this system has worked for me, and then folks in the community where they're like, this system doesn't work, and we need to throw this system out. And one of the things that we've done here with this coalition of King County Equity Now, we've really brought together a lot of the individuals, organizations, entities, you know, change makers, leaders, you know, all of that together to really say, how do we change this, right? How do we do things differently? Throwing out that system and creating something new. And so there's a similarity there. And then you describe this issue with land and housing, which is so prominent here. Um, that is where a lot of my core work is at, is with Africatown Community Land Trust, literally building housing to bring people who have been gentrified out of their you know communities that they've known and loved for so long when they realize, wait, that that's the, where we we want to, you know, put our investment and then the investment goes there and then people can no longer afford to live in the area because now the area has all of this major investment. And so there's a lot of issues here between land and housing. And I heard you also talk earlier about programs of safety. And so I wanted to get into it because what we're seeing right here and what this movement is, is showing us in America is that, you know, there's a huge, huge gap of trust between ourselves and policing. We talked about a little earlier that right now your areas are really being under policed. Our areas are being over policed. Right. And, and so, so there's a new initiative around developing community uh, groups that can do response to some of these calls that the police would get. I think here in America, just for some context for you, 
there's been too much determination or dependency on the police. They've been getting all the calls, whether it's a lost cat or a missing person or a bomb threat, right? It's just, it's all over the spectrum. And, you know, policing and jails in this country is just exorbitant, right? Like we, we jail the most people out of all nations. Like we, it just has become out of whack. And so that's what this movement is really addressing is not only about, you know, the, the deaths of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or even the death of Ahmaud Arbery, which wasn't by police, but also showcases this kind of racial divide in America. But it's, it's really about the longstanding history of police brutality, you know, police uh, misuse of authority. So I want to get into this with you. You know, you talked about under-policing in your areas. What we're doing is trying to work on community-based solutions. How are you guys working on this in your in South Africa? And how is the Social Justice Coalition thinking about policing? I mean, just to, to, to jump on what you were saying about the relationship between um, Black people mostly and the police. And I think our history sort of, dictates that mistrust <laughs> between black South Africans and the police because really they have been the face of violence for black people for for so long. And I think when apartheid ended and there were discussions about how now the the, the police force changes and it changed from being South African police force, I think, or something like that to be South African police service, which the idea was that it, it they are now providing a service to to communities rather than a force that is policing um, people's existence, right? But what what we missed there was the fact that the very same police that were captains and leaders of the police under apartheid were still there. And so if they had been taught to treat black people as criminals, that wasn't cha- wasn't going to change because now they are no longer police force, they are police service, right? Because for so long, they have been indoctrinated and taught that black people are criminals, black people are your target, and you don't engage with these criminals, you beat them up, shoot them, you throw them in your vans and throw them to jail um, with no trial. And so the engagement has been, I mean, there's no trust even to this day. There there isn't trust between um, people and the police. And what's strange for us is that mostly our police are black because black people are the majority in South Africa. So, right. But the mistrust is still there. And another layer, I think, of the challenge is that townships are the breeding ground for crime and violence. And so we need a response system, right? And for many of us, the go-to place is the police station or reporting whatever happens in police stations. But because people have no trust in those, in the, in that system, people don't report crimes. And in South Africa, the less you report, the less resources you get, because there's that assumption that you don't report, therefore there is no crime. At that time, the only reason that people aren't reporting is that they have no faith in this in this system. And so we've 
tried to engage with the Ministry of Police to think through how we improve police services. I mean, uh, in, in 2012, the STAC, together with other many organizations, engaged um, the Minister of Police, asking for a commission of inquiry that was going to look at this breakdown in relations between the community. It, the focus was Kailicha, between the community of Kailicha and the police to look at what causes this breakdown and how we resolve that breakdown. And so the commission finally, and there were, there were so many fights from the government to say there is no need for this commission. Policing is fine in Kailicha. People are happy with how the police service is delivered to them, so there's no need. We even had to take the minister of police to the constitutional court just (laughs) just for the court to declare that look this commission needs to be set up because there is a need for it right and so it was set up and it looked into policing and it spoke to the police to the community um to very many stakeholders who really were working in, in this in this safety and justice sector and after that it came up with 20 recommendations to say this is how policing should be improved in South Africa. And the focus was in Kailicha, but when you look at those 20 recommendations, you can apply them in any township across South Africa because the challenges are the same. And so one of the things that came out from that commission was that townships in South Africa, or Kailicha in particular, has very few police resources, such that the police and men and women in Kailisha are overburdened because you'll find that each, each investigator has over 200 dockets open and that are looking at him or her for a response. And if that's the case, things are bound to fall into cracks and other cases are bound to be not followed up. People are raped, people are killed, people are, are robbed, and no one is getting justice because nothing is happening because too much um, work is on few people's shoulders. And so what the commission said at the time was that police resources need to be redistributed. And that didn't mean that South Africa needed to hire more police into the police service. But what it meant was that areas that are well off, that have very low rates of crime because they are safe communities by naturally in terms of how they are built and who stays there. There are too many resources there and those resources need to be redistributed to areas that need protection. And so we've been working, trying to advocate for that, to say implement those recommendations. And one of those recommendations is what I'm speaking to, to say the redistribution of police resources needs to take place. Another one is recommendation six. And recommendation six spoke to this idea or this this notion that I spoke to earlier about informal settlements being temporary spaces and that even in how the police are trained and how the police plan their work, there is no guideline in place to say this is how you provide the service to informal settlements. Even the police themselves have no idea how to do that because even when they are trained, even in their own strategic plannings, there's no plan to provide that service to informal settlements, which means that millions 
and millions of South Africans aren't thought about, aren't even considered when the Ministry of Police is planning how to provide and protect South African citizens. And so that's another one that we're trying to engage on to say, let's come together. We work in these communities, right? We understand these communities. Let's come together with the police to think through what these guidelines should look like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, A a collaborative process. Yes, because, I mean, the police are trained to police a perfect suburbs with streets and and street names and house numbers and all of that. And informal settlements don't have that, right? And so it needs community members, organizations that are working in the communities together with the police and other parts of the government. Because, for instance, we also have a problem of public lighting in informal settlements, right? Even if the police have now these guidelines to say this is how we provide a service. It's dark at night, so they can't even access the area. Now, local government needs to come in, come to the party to provide public lighting so that safety can actually be a thing and a reality for people staying in informal settlements. So we're trying to engage different stakeholders, really, to say how do we together make sure that... Um, informal settlements are safe and livable spaces um, where every service can be provided without making people feel less of human beings, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, very interesting, the approach in terms of uplifting the informal settlements to make sure that they're livable spaces versus like developing in the suburbs for, you know, these millions of Americans to integrate into the suburbs. And this is just like a question off the top, just listening to you speak. But I just want to hear a little bit from you about the reasons why that's not an option in terms of like, hey, we can, you know, create more space for, you know, folks to begin to integrate into, you know, these areas that are, you know, they've been historically kept out of. No, that's that's definitely an option. We have a sister organization called Rifuna um, Ogwazi and Reclaim the City, and they are doing that work to say we cannot only just talk about the outskirts and how we develop the outskirts, but people there who, because most people in the informal settlements work in town and in the suburbs, right? And so... There's that constant call, and I think Reclaim the City has done an amazing, amazing job to say we are reclaiming this city, we belong to the city, and they have engaged the government, and I think we, together with them, are, I think, the most headache-causing organizations (laughs) for the city of Cape Town, at least. And I think, yeah, Reclaim the City has tried to tackle the issue to say there are vacant there are vacant buildings in the city that people can occupy, that can be developed to be low-cost housing spaces that people can, can stay in. But also there are vacant pieces of land that are golf courses mm-hmm. 
Some of them are being sold to private property developers for next to nothing. And and these spaces could be spaces for affordable housing for people um, to be able to live in town, to live closer to where they work and where they go to school. And so there's always this collaborative effort between these organizations to say, we can talk about how we develop spaces where people are, but also there's this urgent need for people to have ownership of the city and be where big business is, where people are comfortable and sitting um, in safety. So, I mean, the occupied buildings in town, in Seapoint, Seapoint is like a very posh suburb with very expensive houses and apartments. They've, they've occupied there. They've also occupied in Woodstock, which is very close to the city, Cape Town. And also they've engaged the city to say, how do we, together with them, we've challenged sales of, of, of pieces of land to say you can be selling well-located land when people are sitting in the outskirts and spending almost 40% of their incomes on, on transport trying to get to work. So there's that work being done, and maybe it would be interesting for you to engage with that organization. I can give you contacts. Yeah, absolutely. Connect me. Yeah, no, that's just, that's exactly what we're doing here in Seattle. So it's really interesting because uh, another part of my work is with Africatown Community Land Trust, and that's exactly what we're doing. So it's really great to hear that there's dual efforts happening with regards to land and housing. Yeah, no, Mandisa Shandu leads that work um, in town, uh, and I think it would be amazing for you guys to check. There's like so much similarities in the work that you guys do. So So what we try to do is to bite at it from different angles to make sure that um, we are not just focusing on one on one thing. So yeah. I love this, Mandy. So you guys have a really great, robust approach that you're taking with land and housing and safety. Um, and, and so I just want to ask, before we, we end our interview today, what are some of your lessons learned? You've been at SJC now, you said for, you know, for some years, over three years, you know, what is it, what are some of the lessons learned, some of the takeaways uh, that you're, you, you've gained from being there? That it's impossible to do anything if we work in silos, right? If every organization is in its own corner trying to be the best organization, right? And competing with one another for funding and all of that, trying to outdo one another in the media to look like the SJC is doing more than equal education and reclaim the city. (laughs) I've learned that for us to be able to do this work, and succeed in it, we need to come together and build more solidarity. And that we need to show up more for one another, right? And I mean, just with the organizations that we work with, there's now this rise of young black women as leaders of this organization, right? (laughs) Organizations. It's exciting and scary in that Leading organizations has never been a black woman phenomenon, right? And there are so many challenges that make it impossible for young black women to succeed and to break through. And so, and, and, and I think most of us are used to having white men in power such that 
black women's face in power scares people. And there's this thought that, ah, it's going to fail. But I think it's, if it fails, it fails because people aren't being supported to do the work that they need to do. Because you enter the door and people are already like, yo, it's going to fail. Right? And what I've learned is that we need to show up for one another. I can't be wanting to be better than other leaders in other organizations because if they aren't breaking through, it means I'm not breaking through. Mandy Sasha and I've spoken about her. She's a leader of um, the Funao Kwasi. If that door is closed to her, that means I'm going to have to come and fight for for the door to open because if it's open for her, it's open for me, it's open for any other young black leader um, that will come after us. And I think it's upon us to make it a norm for black young black women to be in leadership positions and for us to be taken seriously because literally we are the face of struggle and we understand what struggle in South Africa and every part of the world looks like. And if we are the people leading the fight against inequality, then I think these organizations are in good hands. And there's hope. There's hope for, for success. There's hope that the generations that come after us won't have to fight the fights we are fighting. Because the idea was that we wouldn't have to fight the fights that we are fighting. But here we are. Let's make sure that the generation that comes after us doesn't have to to be dealing with the, I don't want to swear, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't want to be dealing with any of that, any mess, basically. I agree wholeheartedly. And and I, I just want to say, too, that one of the things that I recognize about some of the differences you and I are experiencing in our lived experience, right? You being in South Africa and there being so many black people, like it's predominantly black people, right? Yet these ideals of, the, you know, the, the same kind of colonial constructs around white supremacy and white privilege still exist where you are. And here in America, we are still such a small percentage of the population in terms of the black community that there was this ideal that, well, even if we all got together, we couldn't, you know, we we wouldn't be able to do this fight. Well, one of the things that's really giving me some real positive energy and joy and excitement and inspiration is that this movement that we're seeing right now globally is bringing about a lot of people to understand that these disparities can no longer exist in our world, that we need to do the work collectively, like you just said, collectively doing this work so that we can have equity for all people. And I think that, you know, there are so many areas of this world that have these huge disparities. But one of the things that we see globally is that there's something going on with people who are whites and those who are non-whites. And so there needs to be like a, a whole shifting of the mindsets and ideologies that really begin to shape, you know, our construct of what social, you know, connection is, what a social kind of construct even looks like. You know, what is this hierarchy? Why do we have it amongst ourselves? And so I'm very inspired by the work that you're doing down there in South thank Africa. You. I thank you so much. And I, I'm, I'm I'm also inspired by this global 
awakening that is really happening. And so I, I really, I'm feeling like I'm just giving y'all some energy because you guys got the numbers, you know, like now is the time to collectivize all of those people that are in the townships, in the unincorporated settlements, right? Like, Hey, you guys, if you all get together, don't fight amongst each other. Y'all get together and show this government, you know what I mean? What it is you need and demand it from them and enter these areas. So I'm, I'm so thrilled and motivated and inspired by the work of your your movements out there. And I'm glad that uh, globally, we're all kind of having this awakening that we have to do this work together and collectively. Is there anything that you want to add before we end our interview today? Just to say thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the work that you guys do that side, because I think uh, because what you do is always out there and we are able to see and learn um, from you guys and how in the face of so much violence, you guys push on how it looks like literally everything is against you and you <laughs> and you are still here saying it, it, it's possible. And I think, I mean, the, 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 the uprising after George Floyd's death and how as much as that was a very sad moment for us, it was also a moment of awakening. And I think not just in America, for us in South Africa as well, and I think across, across Africa, to say, look, we've tolerated this ill treatment for centuries. And even to this day, we are not saying we want to overthrow people and kill people. Right. <laughs> we just want to be treated with dignity. Yes. We just want to be recognized as human, for human beings. And how you guys have articulated that need and that struggle and how you continue to lead that work. And maybe also debunking the myth that it's all good to be American, it's nice, and everyone wants to go to America because it's so beautiful, right? But what you continue to show us is the truth and the true experiences of black people and that this dehumanization of black people isn't just happening in Africa, it's happening in America and it's not just an American phenomenon, it's something that we all need to fight against from every corner of the world until, until, you know, until Steve Beagles said something in, during his time that we want the freedom to call our bodies our own. Until we could do that, until we can do that as black people, until we can stand without fear, until we can enter spaces and know that we are respected, the fight doesn't stop. And thank you guys for for using the, the, the spotlight that is on you to show us that the fight does, doesn't stop, that we want the freedom to call our bodies our own and whatever it takes, we will push and fight until that has been achieved. Oh, thank my you. word. 
Absolutely. I'm so inspired right now and I'm holding back all of my tears of joy because I'm like, you are phenomenal. I will definitely be uh, keeping in contact with you, Mandisa. Uh, I thank you so much for being on the show today and for, for blessing our listeners with, you know, your story and your passion. It is coming through so clearly for me right now. And I'm so inspired by what you're doing. We'll definitely be in together in space when the travel allows. I'm coming to visit. I don't care. So it's happening. It's happening. (laughs) Thank you again. This has been an amazing show. You guys have been listening to Equity Rising, a podcast from King County Equity Now. I'm your host, Trey Holiday, and this has been a great episode. Thank you all for listening.